Hello and welcome to a brand new season of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher, author and creator of the podcast. Before we begin, I'd just like to take a moment to thank you for your continued support of the show. It has developed into something far bigger than I ever imagined it would become, and that is down to your engagement. The feedback you send via Twitter or other social media is always humbling, and means that we continue to strive to grow and expand upon what we offer in the way of free access to experts in folklore and folk tradition from around the world. If you are new to the podcast, then welcome, and thanks for choosing to listen. The whole back catalogue of episodes is still available to listen to on the Folklore Podcast website, and I hope that you enjoy catching up. Just a quick reminder that the main episodes of the podcast will always be free to listen to, and accessible to everyone. But we do need your help and support where you can to keep things that way. After five seasons, the show is still ad-free, with no annoying sponsorship breaks, and we want to keep it this way. But it does take a lot of time, resource, and investment to maintain this approach. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, then do consider signing up to our Patreon page for a small monthly donation. You'll be able to access extra bonus content and resources, and even the $1 a month tier will reward with our Folklore Audiobook Partworks. The address for this is www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you don't want to contribute regularly, then you can visit the Folklore Podcast web store and make a one-off donation there. And, if you can't contribute financially, then there's other things you can do to help, such as leaving positive reviews or sharing the episodes with comments on social media. This all helps to increase the audience and allows us to bring our content to more people. Thank you for anything you do to help the continued success of the show. We start Season 5 rooted in old folklore by revisiting a popular topic, fairies. My guest today is Morgan Daimler, who is the author of many books on this subject as well as Irish law and belief. Up for discussion is Morgan's book, A New Dictionary of Fairies, which is a continuation of the pioneering work undertaken by one of the greats of folklore, Catherine Briggs. Morgan concentrates on the Celtic and Western European traditions in particular, and their work is good, solid folklore collecting and research with a passion for the topic. It's an interview which I think sets us up for a great season of shows. I hope you enjoy it. Hi Morgan, uh, welcome to the Folklore Podcast and welcome to the first Folklore Podcast of Season 5. You are here in the number one spot as the first guest <laughs> of the new year and it's a pleasure to have you here. That's, that's very exciting, start <laughs> of a new season. It is indeed. Um, so today we are going to talk about one of your many books, um, and that book is A New Dictionary of Fairies. Um, mm-hmm. Fairies being a subject that we have discussed before on the podcast, but but um, relating to slightly different things. We've discussed them relating to modern sightings of fairies, and we will 
touch upon that, but obviously we're looking at uh, some kind of deeper area of folklore. And, we, and we've looked at fairies related to uh, witch trials in the past as well. Um, mm, that's a fascinating topic. It, it absolutely is, and and obviously comes up with, with what you cover, uh, which is predominantly um, an exploration of Western European and Celtic fairy traditions. Now, before we get into that, um, let's just start, if we may, by you saying a little bit about how you became interested in folklore and fairy traditions and and the other things that you research. Oh, I've pretty much always been interested in um, fairy traditions specifically for as far back as I can remember. Um, and I started getting more interested in in wider folklore um, and in what we have for, for written um, fairy material probably when I was in my teens. Um, so that would have been the 1990s, uh, if I can date myself slightly there. <laughs> and, um, you know, religiously I am pagan, so there is a bit of an overlap, um, I think, sort of between the spirituality and then the, um, the more academic academia side of it and um, the more I got into researching it uh, it it sort of becomes almost an obsession um, trying to learn as much about it as you can and there's always more to uncover more to learn um, so it's such a fascinating topic and it's it's so broad but at the same time uh, in its way so specific um, and so that also kind of fascinates me. You know, there's those overarching motifs with it, um, things like, you know, the, the fairy midwife and the stolen bride and changelings, things like that. And yet uh, when you get into different regional beliefs and specific areas, even within those motifs, you can see these um, very uh, specific detailed approaches to how the beliefs are incorporated and um integrated into communities and into, um, you know, living belief systems. Um, so all of that just really intrigues me. Uh, and I, I do not have a degree in um, folklore specifically. I actually have a degree in psychology, but I think there might be some, some overlap and interest there as well. So I sort of have used what I learned um, getting that degree uh, to my approach, in my approach uh, to studying fairies and fairy lore, um, both the historic material and the modern material. Well, folklore, of course, is all about belief at the end of the day. And, right. you know, what, what is psychology if it's not a subject which looks at, at why people behave the way they do and why they believe the way they do? So, um, yeah, there's certainly um, a great deal of crossover, I think, between psychology as a subject and folklore. Uh, and you're absolutely right when you when you talk about things like the fairy midwife, of course, as well. Um, you find it in lots of different aspects of folklore, don't you, that, that as stories travel geographically then they take on these these cultural aspects um from where different people settle so you still get that same core story with with these extra bits kind of bolted on which changes it slightly right and it's it's to me it's just deeply fascinating to look at how that um sort of wider um overarching pattern to it can stay the same 
even in very diverse places and across different um, sort of uh, cultures uh, in some cases, uh, and yet still have its own uh, particular flavor when you're looking at specific areas, the way that different communities adapt it or adopt it. Um, you know, it's just really intriguing. Um, it certainly is. So, so let's um, let's have a look at some of these aspects then of fairy folklore that you that you um, discuss. But but before we get into any detail, uh, I just like to start, if I may, um, by reading one of the um, one of the quotes that people have said about your book um, from the very first page. Um, and that that quote is as follows: I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Indeed, I would call it a worthy successor to the work of the late great Catherine Briggs, the most highly regarded expert on fairies in the last half of the twentieth century. Uh, would you like to say a little bit about the work of Catherine Briggs uh, and how how your work follows on from uh, what she did? It's hard to say a little bit about Catherine Briggs. Um, you know, she really is sort of the 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 staple, the mainstay um, when it comes to fairy lore. And a lot of her work, um, in my opinion at least, was was very seminal in the field. Um, she brought together a lot of um, diverse material into uh, one one resource. Um, and she's she's written quite a bit on the topic of fairies, of course, across um, sort of the breadth of her career. Um, my book was an attempt, um, you know, and clearly just an attempt, but to sort of have a more updated, modernized version of Briggs' Dictionary of Fairies. Um, I don't really compare my work with Catherine Briggs' work because hers the scope is much broader and much more in depth um than what i was able to do uh but of course you know she was working more in the middle of the 20th century um dictionary of fairies for example came out in the 1970s um, her encyclopedia of fairies was around the same time um and you know the majority of her work was sort of in that period between the um it was the late 50s or early 60s um, and the late 70s. So, you know, enough time has gone by really at this point that there's a lot of new information, there's a lot of new material, a lot of new things that have been written um, when it comes to fairies and fairy lore, um, obviously a multitude of new anecdotal accounts. And there really hasn't been, as far as I'm aware, um, as someone who does try to to follow this field fairly closely, um, there really hasn't been an, a, another attempt like what Briggs did. Um, there was a book on English folklore that came out in the 90s. It's not fairy lore specific, but it does have the same sort of tone to Briggs' work. Um, but outside of that, particularly in the last 20 years, uh, there's really nothing out there that tries to to bring a lot of this material together the way that Catherine Briggs did and create a resource that is both fairly um, accurate uh, for what we have on the material and also uh, covering as much of the material as possible. Um, and again, I, I had my limitations 
um, you know, with what my publisher would allow me to do word count wise and what I could feasibly include. But, you know, the idea was to offer something that would at least in spirit be uh, an update of what uh, Briggs had done in the seventies because her work is so very essential. Um, there are many people who still uh, look to it and rely on it as a resource today, even 40 years later, because it was so thorough and so um, inclusive in what it covered. Um, so it's definitely something that we need need out there on the market. Um, I would love to see someone else do something that really is the equivalent to Briggs' work and has that depth and that length to it, um, you know. But so far, there's nothing else out there. So that was sort of where I was coming from with what I did. I have an immense amount of respect for Catherine Briggs um, and her work. Um, I think that she really shifted in her own way um, the way that the fairy material was being treated um, you sort of previous to her have a much more um, subjective and opinionated approach to it for what we have in the written material. Um, and then she really took that very um, academia-minded tone with it, you know, presented it as it was in the living cultures and the belief systems um, without necessarily really adding too much of her own opinion to what she was presenting. Although she does, of course, have books where she gets into analyzing uh, the particular fairy motifs. Um, the fairy, One of her books, Fairies in um, Tradition and Literature, does that really, really well. Uh, so she did touch on that aspect of it. But without the sort of bias, I think, that we were finding in the early 20th century, late 19th century sources, I think you're absolutely right. I, I I think you know. I mean, her work her works are seminal works, aren't they? And and um, people do hold a lot of respect for them. But at the same time, I your book really does work as um, a very good companion volume to that, and it and it does carry on doing the same kind of work in the same vein. Now, explain a little bit about why you chose to discuss. Um, Celtic and Western European fairy law, uh, and then leading on from that, maybe if you can explain a little bit about the differences between the Celtic and Western European fairies and other traditions. Sure. Um, my main personal focus when it comes to um, to what I study and, and what my main interest is in uh, would be Irish material, the, the Irish fairy lore. And sort of branching out from that, uh, the, the related Celtic language-speaking cultures, so primarily um, Welsh and Scottish, just because there's uh, more of that that's been recorded and it's a little easier to access. Um, although in the book, of course, I do touch on Cornish and, and Manx um, and a little bit of um, material from Brittany, uh, all of them tend to have um, what I would say, and I think also what what um, scholars would say, are related themes, um, related uh, tone, if you will, in how 
uh, fairies are uh, described and approached, treated um, in the folklore material and anecdotal accounts, in the the stories that we see those wider motifs motifs being carried through. Um, so it, it can be really productive to sort of compare what we have in one particular area, expanding out into those related cultures. Um, so my interest, as I said, started in Ireland and Irish material, and then sort of grew through comparing it to the other Celtic language-speaking cultures, um, and then from there to the other um, Western European cultures, which are also related, although uh, somewhat more distantly, depending on which one we're discussing. Um, so English fairy lore, for example, which has obviously been influenced by uh, assorted different uh, Celtic language cultures, but also has um, Anglo-Saxon, for example, and other cultural influences which brought in different approaches to fairy belief. Um, and then I do touch on as well um, Norse, which uh, I think we can safely include in Western European um, for the most part. Um, and the Norse cultures and their approaches to fairy lore tend to look, when we study them, sort of like distant cousins to what we see in the Celtic material. Um, there's clear similarities. Sometimes there's even uh, reflections of these same wider motifs, um, changelings, for example, um, fairy brides, for example. Um, but they have a different tone and approach to them uh, being uh, given to us through the lens of a, a different culture. So it gets particularly interesting uh, for me, looking at the areas where the different cultures strongly overlapped, um, so like the Orkney Isles, which were originally Celtic and then became Norse, and have just a very fascinating um, sort of system of fairy belief there, where you can see echoes of what we would find in the, the neighboring Celtic cultures, but um, also that strong Norse influence and, and clear um, things like the, the trows, um, which are, are believed to be heavily influenced by troll beliefs in different Norse countries. Um, so it just creates this really fascinating mix of beliefs. Um, we see the same thing when we look at Iceland and Icelandic fairy beliefs, which are believed to have been um, influenced uh, to what degree uh, people aren't entirely sure by Irish beliefs. Um, possibly through a couple different sources. And again, you can see that in the way there are certain similarities uh, between the beliefs in one place and the other. Uh, the idea that uh, you shouldn't do any construction or road work that might interfere with the location associated with these beings. Um, that's something we find in Ireland. It's something we also find in Iceland. Um, the idea that they're very fond of dairy products kind of see that in both um, you know so, so certain aspects like that that are carried over so you know I, while I think there is a lot of value in focusing very specifically on one particular culture um, I think having that sort of wider cultural uh, cross comparison view 
is also very helpful, not only in starting to see the, the wider picture that forms and those, um, those concepts that exist across the cultures, uh, but also to see and understand what is unique uh, to a particular area um, versus what is widespread. You really can't see that without looking at the, the diversity that's out there. Um, when we get outside of Western Europe and we start to get into, for example, Southern Europe or Eastern Europe, uh, because you have a, a different blend of cultural influences, you still find belief in beings that we would, in English, you know, label as fairies, um, but you tend not to find the same um, degree or the same uh, wider motifs going on. Um, the beliefs start to get more different, uh, if you will, as you go further out. Um, so that was why I sort of focused the way I did on the cultures that I did, because they have this this crossover, um, probably from the interaction of the cultures, of course, with each other um, across different historic periods. And Ireland and um, Iceland, of course, um, in modern times, arguably have some of the the strongest fairy beliefs and traditions still now those you think stem from the strength of the roots in the celtic fairy lore in those two places uh i definitely think that's a a significant factor um i think the way that the beliefs themselves were strongly rooted into the cultures um uh that also has allowed them to survive to the degree that they do. Um, of course, as we move further forward into the 21st century and modern technology and everything, it it definitely does put pressure on the the older traditional beliefs um, because it is sort of viewed as um, backwards thinking or superstitious. Uh, which is really unfortunate. I would much rather see people preserving these beliefs and and continuing to have them than letting them go. Um, You know, there's in Ireland and Iceland both, um, there's often sort of an overriding denial um, that these beings are real, like they will tell you that they don't exist or that people don't believe in them, but they act in ways that reflect belief. Um, for example, they're not building roads in certain areas, not disturbing certain locations. Um, you know, the respect that was sort of ingrained in the belief system still exists. Um, and of course, there are people in, in both places that are uh, either trying to revive these beliefs or to, you know, continue, um, continue with them, um, carry them forward uh, so that does help but um you know i think part of why we don't see them as much in um, some other cultures is that it um was sort of easier to eradicate them because they weren't as deeply ingrained in the folk belief in the with the people um and it was easier for people to let them go whereas you know some places were better at preserving them and that's not a country-specific statement. That's more of a location, regional-specific statement. 
Um, I think if you go anywhere that has historically had fairy beliefs, you're going to find places where those beliefs are still there and are still very strong. Um, and then you'll find places where they're, they're not as much. Um, and it is tricky, as I mentioned, because not everyone will publicly acknowledge that they still believe in these stories, still believe in these beings. Um, there, there can be um, sort of a habit of um, denying it or, you know, not outright admitting it, but still holding the belief personally. So that makes it a little difficult to gauge in some circumstances. Now, if we, when we think about um, the way fairies look or the way fairies appear, uh, what their makeup is in the Celtic traditions, uh, can you explain a little bit about what the general appearance of fairy in those traditions is compared to some of the other fairy traditions, for example? Sure. Um, and again, every every different region, um, and particularly if we get into the, the wider cultural views will have variations. When we look at the, the Celtic language speaking cultures, we generally see sort of an array of um, fairy beings. Fairy being used to um, describe something, but also sort of in a more broad term. Um, you know, if someone says a being is a fairy, it really doesn't tell us much except that being has an otherworldly nature. So when we look at descriptions of them, you know, they can range from um, animals. There are fairies that are described appearing as dogs, cats, horses, um, goats, you know, sort of that whole variety of animals that you might regularly encounter, except these are not um, regular human world animals. Um, we also see what people more generally might consider the, the sort of traditional um, modern, if I can combine those two words successfully, description of uh, fairies as being, uh, you know, one and a half to three feet tall, uh, sometimes looking like children, sometimes looking like old men. Um, but in a lot of cases, when we look at descriptions of these beings, and again, this is across um, pretty much all Western European cultures, there, there is a good percentage of them that are described as uh, simply looking like human beings except otherworldly in some way. Um, something marks them out as not being uh, a human being who would be your neighbor or live around you. There's something different to them um, and not something physically that marks them out. Um, this is more of a perception or energy around them or something that uh, people encountering them come to believe. Uh, when we hear the actual descriptions of them, they, you know, often will be between, say, four and a half and six feet tall, so sort of in that um, average human adult range. Um, they do not, contrary to... Uh, the way that people today tend to perceive them from uh, fiction in particular, they do not have pointed ears. They, they usually are described with the normal rounded ear. Um, the pointed ear thing comes to us from originally from artwork uh, and then later from fiction. I should clarify before I blame fiction for everything. 
Um, they generally do not have wings, um, although that is sort of the the way they're depicted now, particularly in in more modern art. Um, when we look at the the older folklore and the older stories, and even the majority of anecdotal accounts, um, they do not have wings. Uh, if they are flying, they are flying through what we might consider like levitation. They're just up in the air flying with no obvious explanation for how they're doing it. Um, or they might be riding a horse or an enchanted item um, in order to, to pass through the air. Uh, but so, we, we really don't see the descriptions of fairies having wings um, again until fairly recently. Um, and that's something that started in the roughly the 17th century in the theater um, and then became something that was seen in artwork and then finally in the fiction. Uh, it is interesting to note, and I will mention, that in the recent uh, fairy census that was done, um, they the fairy census is something that can be found online. It's um, just sort of a collection of modern anecdotal accounts uh, that was done in the, I believe it was 2011 to 2014, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and that did include modern recent anecdotal accounts of people seeing fairies with wings, uh, which is certainly particularly interesting because it's a, a notable shift from how they have always previously been uh, described in encounters um, and in the older folklore itself. So, you know, whether um, people's expectations of how they look or how they will look are shaping what people are experiencing um, or whether something actually has shifted or changed in some sense, you know, that, that would be up to the individual's opinion. But that is something that's worth um, noting as a change in the way these beings are being perceived and encountered. Uh, the majority of the material, however, that we do have does not include wings um, or tiny fairies. Uh, of course, it is such a broad range of beings. If you look at specific folklore in specific places, you can find examples that would fit uh, nearly any description that we can come across. Um, there are a group of, uh, I believe it's Manx fairies, that are supposed to be the size of ants, so very, very tiny. Um, winged fairies, I can't think of any uh, offhand in folklore up until the recent period. Um, recent being within the last, uh, say, 50 to 100 years. Uh, when we when we move past that, or if we look at cultures with, um, you know, in Western Europe uh, that have these preserved folk beliefs more strongly, um, we just don't don't see that as much. Um, and how that's going to be affected by the the wider spread of modern depictions is hard to say. Uh, which is part of what made that fairy census so interesting. Um, it's the first time we've seen those descriptions and anecdotal accounts. So it will be uh, something worth watching to see if that progresses and becomes more common. Um, and the fairy census um, is, is um, a, a really useful resource as well. That's um, 
collated by the Fairy Investigation Society um, yeah. and was collected by um, Simon Young and is easy to find online. Now, do you think, Morgan, that um, the Victorian flower fairy symbol has a lot to do with the, the way that these winged fairies um, are sort of introduced into the folklore? I do. I do. Um, and there have been several books written... Uh, specifically looking at fairies during the Victorian era um, because that was a very turbulent time for uh, fairy belief in um, particularly American and uh, English society, I guess we shall say. Um, There was a marked shift during the Victorian period from what we would find, sort of what I had just described, human-sized, human-looking fairies or um, animalistic fairies or, you know, this sort of wide folkloric array. Um, We start to see that during the Victorian period and then progressively throughout the Victorian period, uh, shifting into this depiction of um, fairies as small, uh, butterfly-winged or insect-winged, sort of insect-like in, in a lot of senses, as you mentioned, very associated with fairies. Um, Cicely Mary Barker did a lot of um, illustrations of flower fairies that were very popular and are still very popular today. Uh, and that certainly does influence how people perceive them um, and then imagine them to be and sort of carry that forward. Um, the Victorians were also the ones, I believe, who started the shift from fairies as beings who were ambiguous and often either potentially dangerous or outright dangerous uh, into beings who were more um, not necessarily harmless, uh, but perhaps more impotent in what they could effectively do to human beings. Um, you know, even if we look at, uh, for example, uh, J.M. Barry's uh, Peter Pan stories with Tinkerbell, because um, she would be one of the earlier depictions in fiction of a uh, small winged fairy. Um, you know, we, we see her still having a bit of that older fairy nature, um, being possessive and jealous and, and sort of a little bit vicious in her way, um, trying to get Wendy killed certainly qualifies as vicious, I think, but um, she couldn't actually do that herself in that uh, story. She had to try to have um, other people, um, human beings or, you know, the Lost Boys, as it were, uh, act as her agents in order to accomplish what she wanted, uh, in that case, Wendy's death. Um, and that is a definite change from what we see in, in other folklore, um, specifically in folklore, about fairies where, you know, they were always seen as beings who were capable of causing harm, able to cause harm. And in fact, there's a plethora of protections against fairies as far back as we have, you know, recorded material about fairies pretty much. Can you give a couple um, of examples of there? That if you anchored them, um, or if you were just very unlucky and in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, you know, they, they could and would cause you harm. Um, and it was really during that Victorian period that we start to see 
the the bigger shift into this idea of fairies as not being harmful and also not really being capable of causing harm. Um, and that is something that is certainly carried through and perpetuated uh, forward in generations um, into the way that uh, certain demographics now understand fairies and what they are. Um, it's, it's a marked contrast to other folklore um, and to uh, to older beliefs. I tend to say traditional beliefs, but um, when I use that term, I'm just uh, trying to have a shorthand way to refer to the fairy lore as it has existed historically and continues to exist in some places. Um, it is, of course, a living and evolving system of belief. Um, so things do continue to adapt and change. But the Victorian era sort of saw this bifurcation of belief um, where you would have the, the older view of fairies as potentially dangerous and um, not beings that you really wanted to be on the bad side of, beings that you might want to protect yourself against. Um, continue to exist in uh, specific places and in specific forms, but then you also saw this sort of new branch of belief coming forward, um, particularly popular with uh, middle and upper class uh, people uh, that saw them very differently, very differently in size, very differently in description, and certainly very differently in, in agency. So it's interesting to see now how those two belief systems are kind of coming together and uh, disagreeing in some areas uh, and sort of melding in others because there there has been a push recently towards seeing fairies again as potentially more dangerous um, or at the least not all friendly and helpful, which is a return to that that older uh, more traditional viewpoint. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see as we move forward and as, as social media and the Internet continues to cause this sort of aggregating effect where people can access across the whole spectrum of belief um, how things end up settling out. Uh, but, yes, the Victorian period and fairies, um, I could probably talk about that for an entire hour <laughs> on its own. But it's, it's a very interesting time period for fairy belief. Um, because there was so much transition, um, and it was such a, a sharp, noticeable shift. Um, it, it really sort of redefined fairies uh, for, again, for an entire demographic. So, so certainly, if um, if fairies are seen uh, in these ways of being more dangerous, for example, um, then those methods of protection that you referred to earlier on in in that segment uh, <clears throat> are certainly something that's still going to be very important in in fairy law. Can you just explain a little bit about what some of those common protections would have been that you were referring to there? Oh, certainly. Um, I mean, there's so many approaches to apotropaic material when it comes to fairies. Um, probably the main one the most common one that you will hear referenced in folklore um, across the board. And this applies in, in all the Western um, European cultures that, that I was looking at at least would be the use of iron. 
um, the idea that iron is something that the majority, not all, but the majority of fairies are averse to um, and will therefore avoid. Uh, sometimes we see references to cold iron specifically, which is an iron weapon. Um, any, any iron that has an edge or a point to it. Uh, but the idea that iron uh, in itself and by its nature is something that um, fairies will not want to be around. Um, iron it has a very interesting history when it comes to that protective um, apotropaic use because it is also supposed to be good, of course, for protecting a person against malefic witchcraft, um, against any kind of negative spirits, demons, um, fairies, sort of anything across that spectrum, ghosts. Um, that was why uh, graveyards were often uh, circled with an iron fence to sort of contain any potential dangerous or negative entities that might be in there. Um, so iron is a, a main one that we see. Um, there's one Welsh account from um, a book from the 19th century by um, Weert Sykes. I believe it's called British Goblins, if I remember the title correctly, um, where he relates a story of a gentleman who was traveling through the mountains and uh, the Welsh mountain fairies started harassing him. And um, finally, uh, in desperation, he pulled his knife and as soon as the iron cleared the sheath, all of the fairies fled and disappeared. Um, they're, they're just immediately averse to its presence uh, is the way it's usually relayed. Um, this is why it was common to have some sort of iron around a baby's cradle um, or a woman who is in labor um, in childbed. Uh, if possible, there would be some sort of iron uh, kept around her. To, to ward off the fairies and their potential um, malefic influence going on. Um, we also see accounts of salt being used uh, as a protection of the ward against fairies. Um, as I'd mentioned a little bit ago, not all fairies are averse to iron. Uh, there are specific types that are not bothered by it. So while it is sort of the main fairy warding uh, that's that's often mentioned um, does not work against all of them so there's an array of options for people out there um, salt is something that's mentioned uh, it's generally thought because salt is a purifier and something that preserves uh, preserve food for example that uh, that was why the fairies didn't want to be around it obviously we don't know for certain um, just that it's, it's, it is recommended. Um, there's also one account in the Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries um, by W.Y. Evans Wentz uh, from Ireland of a gentleman who relayed that the fairies would only eat unsalted food, um, again, sort of implying that they were uh, averse to salt or at least not particularly fond of salt. Uh, much like the iron, that doesn't apply to everything. Obviously, if you have... Uh, a Rowan or a Selkie um, or a Finfolk, uh, you know, something that's in the ocean, um, salt is not going to particularly bother them. Um, and I should mention quickly before I forget about the iron, um, iron is something that was also used against the um, Alfar, the elves 
in Iceland and in some other Norse countries. So um, that is something that is seen cross-culturally. Um, we also have Rowan, uh, Rowan and Red Thread in particular uh, is another one that we see mentioned fairly commonly. Uh, there's a selection of herbs, uh, St. John's wort, broom. Um, both of those are thought to be things that fairies don't particularly want to be around, um, that they'll avoid those uh, items. Um, and then, of course, it's fairly common belief across um, Western Europe because of the influence of Christianity that uh, things like church bells ringing, um, Christian prayer, the presence of a Bible, the presence of a cross are also things that fairies will avoid. And there's quite a few different uh, folkloric stories and even some anecdotal accounts about um, fairies, you know, fleeing when uh, church bells were ringing. Um, there's one particular area, for example, that all the fairies were supposed to have left once a church bell was installed in the local church because they couldn't tolerate the sound of it. Um, Redcaps, who are uh, a English um, type of, I suppose you would say goblin, but um, fairy more generally, uh, that are not averse to iron. They're actually supposed to wear iron-toed shoes um, and use iron weapons, uh, but they are very averse to anything Christian. So uh, reciting prayers out loud, wearing a cross, um, anything of that nature is the, really the only thing that will protect against them because uh, other things don't bother them. So, um, and this is just touching, obviously, on a, a small handful of potential um, apotropaic items. Um, there's also actions that can be taken, although you just be a little cautious with those because they are also as likely to anger the fairies. Um, so things like keeping dirty water inside a home um, that in some regions is thought to ward off fairies because they they can't tolerate dirty standing water. Um, feet water is what it would be called from people washing their feet when they come in the house. Uh, I will say, though, there are other specific areas where having that sort of thing in the house will allow fairies to come in, even if you have other protections against them. So that one is a very... Uh, localized and, and regionally specific belief. Um, but the idea that fairies don't like um, dirtiness or um, human waste is something that we also find cross-culturally. So um, the idea that uh, you can sort of get them out of an area if you um, throw dirty water, um, if you urinate on the ground, um, that will make them leave. Uh, that is something that we see in, in various cultures, um, various Celtic cultures, and also in Iceland. Um, there's actually a term in Icelandic for um, urinating that translates to driving out the elves because that was how strong the belief was. It's sort of become an idiom. Um, the, I, the difficulty, I should say, with that, of course, is that if you do that, it will... Um, clear the area, potentially, of these beings, but it's also likely to make them angry. So you have to sort of judge uh, 
make your decision on, on what the wise choice is there. Um, there's some accounts in the um, death of Bridget Cleary, who was a woman in the late 19th century in Ireland who was killed by her husband and several of her family members because they thought she was a fairy changeling, um, that uh, she had urine thrown on her. Um, and for anyone who's familiar with that story and that particular aspect of the account, that is likely why that was done, because it was believed that um, if there were fairies present, they would leave, um, they, they would not remain around that particular bodily fluid. So um, it is supposed to be effective, just does not make them particularly happy. <laughs> now, there, as I said earlier, is a, a, a massive amount of uh, research in your book, and it is something that we could spend uh, a long time going through. Um, so I just wanted to pick out one or two areas um, of Celtic law to explore, which which differ in some ways, perhaps from some of uh, the other fairy traditions. Um, so, could you first off explain to people what the terms "seely" and "unseely" court mean, and how they fit into Celtic fairy traditions? Certainly, um, "seely" and "unseely" are uh, Scots words. Um, they're words from the Scots dialect uh, or language. There's an open debate about whether Scots is a dialect or a language, uh, so I will let you all decide for yourselves. But um, Seely effectively means, it has, of course, a lot of meanings, but um, effectively in this context means uh, blessed, lucky, fortunate, um, sort of has connotations of something that... Uh, is positive or good. Uh, Unseely, in contrast, is um, a word that means unlucky, unfortunate, uh, sort of miserable uh, in connotation. And both of those terms came to be associated with the fairies uh, across time and in slightly different ways. Um, Despite having said the word fairy now in this podcast, multiple, multiple times. It is generally considered um, bad luck to use that particular word. So what you find is the use of euphemisms, um, the idea that you would want to use a positive term in case the fairies happened to be around. It was believed they could pass invisibly and that they at any time could be around a person and you would not be aware that they were there. And if you were using a term they did not like, they would become offended and then potentially do you some harm. So the practice of using euphemisms is something that we see, and we see this again across Celtic language-speaking cultures. Um, All of them adopted this practice, which is really fascinating. And um, the idea was that if they heard you speaking of them, you would be using a term that um, they did not find offensive and in fact uh, in some cases might find complimentary so we see these ideas of like the good folk um, the gentry people of peace mother's blessing um, all being applied to fairies and it wasn't because people believed that the fairies were these things it wasn't that people believed they were peaceful um, or good um, or you know inherently kind 
Um, but it was because if they were overhearing you, you would want them to, to see you in a good light and believe that you are respectful towards them. So the term Sealy was originally uh, apparently used in this euphemistic sense. And we can find examples of it going back to the um, 15th and 16th century in the lowland areas of Scotland. Um, some of these come uh, from the Scottish witch trials uh, as well. And it's clear at that point that they, uh, when they refer to, for example, the Seely Court, um, they weren't actually referring to one specific group. It was a reference to sort of all of all fairies, the whole category of them. Um, court in that sense, again, being used in the Scots term of a group or a company. And um, so we see these references to the Seely Court and to, to Seely Whites, Seely Wicks, Seely Beings. Um, uh, white, I should add, is another Scots word. It just means a being, a living thing. Um, and over time, we start to see this shift and addition of the idea of the unseely, um, sort of balancing out uh, the seely. If the seely court are the fairies that people would believe are more potentially kindly inclined towards humans, um, you're sort of invoking that aspect of them in a sense, uh, using that particular euphemism, then the unseely court as a term was used to describe the fairy beings that were sort of innately um, inimical to humans, that they, they had no um, sort of innate uh, benevolence to them when it came to humanity. Uh, like everything else, these are not hard and firm categories. These tend to to shift and being that would normally be categorized, if you will, as Seely could still potentially be dangerous to humans, um, whereas beings who would normally be considered unseely could occasionally be helpful um, to humans. So it's not a hard and fast rule. It's more of a loose description. Um, the way that uh, Mary McNeil put it in The Silver Bow is to explain that this book was published in 1956, was to explain it as the Seely Court would always give, or Seely Fairies would always give a warning if someone was offending them or overstepping or engaging in problematic behavior when it came to fairies before they would retaliate for whatever that behavior was. Um, the unseelie court, in her opinion, was the reason that the majority of protections against fairies existed, and they were the ones who were the most inclined to simply sort of immediately respond in a violent manner uh, to any offense um, along those lines, anything that, that annoyed them or angered them or upset them. And what's particularly interesting, again, looking at this sort of wider array of folklore is the ideas of the Seely and Unseely court, um, the idea of these, these two sort of groups of more kindly inclined fairies and then um, sort of malicious by nature fairies, uh, was originally very regionally specific. Um, it is something that we really only 
ever saw in this one particular area, the folklore of this one particular area. And then over time, particularly, uh, I believe, through the written word, it um, started to be something that was seen in other areas as well. And at this point, um, it's actually become very popular in modern fiction. Um, urban fantasy really leans into the seely and unseely um, as literal royal courts. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to note how what was originally a fairly localized regional belief uh, ended up becoming very widespread. Um, there's no indication of the Seely and Unseely courts being found in Ireland, for example. Um, the words are not Irish. The words are very clearly Scots. And um, in Irish, uh, in an Irish language material, you don't find any sort of comparable concept to that. Um, but when I was in Ireland in uh, 2016, I was in, uh, I was up at Elmacha, uh at the, um, the uh, Iron Age Fort up there, um, Navin Fort Center, and uh, one of the people who was doing the storytelling uh, for that day uh, specifically mentioned the Seely and Unseely courts while retelling an Irish legend, um, the Irish legend of Finn McCool and his um, wife Sav. So that was very interesting to me to see this incorporation of, of a very Scottish idea and a, something that's become widespread in modern terms being incorporated and then retold um, in an Irish legend and sort of being adapted as part of that, um, which is, is certainly a marked shift from uh, the historic approach. So the idea of these two courts, even though they started out very specific, are becoming very widespread. Um, the majority of sources that use them are really not, do not seem to be particularly aware um, of the source or even really of the meaning of the two words. Um, so there, there is a bit of distortion that's happening with how the groups are viewed and, and understood as they sort of continue on, um, particularly in fiction, it's like a game of telephone. The, the original folklore gets gets very lost, um, but the, the sort of highlight ideas continue, if that makes sense. Yes, it does indeed. Um, and there's another aspect which I wanted to very quickly touch on, um, which you mentioned to me before we recorded tonight when we were talking about ideas, um, which comes up in the Celtic traditions, but not necessarily in some of the other ones. And that's this idea of the paying of a tithe to hell. Can you um, just say a little bit about how that fits into the um, Celtic law? Sure. Um, and this is another one that we find uh, specifically in the lowland areas of Scotland. Um, there's a lot of very rich fairy lore um, in those areas. And the, the idea of a tide to hell is particularly unique to the area around um, Stirling, uh, Aberfoyle, kind of in that, that locality. Um, and we don't find it anywhere else. Uh, you don't even see it uh, in the, the older material in the northern areas of Scotland. You don't see it in England. 
Um, you don't find it in Ireland. You don't find it anywhere except this one um, fairly small regional area. And the idea, um, you know, put simply is that the – I suppose before I get to the simply part, I, I should start to step back a tiny bit. There are various beliefs as to the nature of fairies and what fairies are. Um, and these run a whole spectrum, and that would be an entire different topic to get into. But very quickly, for the purposes of, of this topic, um, one particular approach to understanding fairies is the belief that they are a type of fallen angel, that uh, when the, the angels had their war in heaven and um, the, the ones who rebelled were cast out, there was also a group of, of angels who, for various reasons, either because they wouldn't choose a side or sort of purely by accident, ended up also being thrown out, but that they were um, too good to go to hell, too good to become demons um, and to go with Lucifer, but not good enough to be redeemed and to stay in heaven. And so these uh, sort of ambiguous angels became fairies. And that is a belief that we find across different Celtic language cultures. But the way it's particularly interpreted in this one area in Scotland is that because they were cast out and because they are now fairies, they are sort of tenants of hell. Um, they do not belong to hell. They are not demons in and of themselves. But um, the devil and hell are effectively their landlord. And so depending on, on which particular story we're looking at, either every year or every seven years, the um, fairy folk have to pay a tithe or a cane. They have to pay rent um, effectively uh, to hell in order to continue existing and living where they are and as they are. And one way that they do this so that they don't have to sacrifice their own members is by stealing humans and uh, taking these humans and keeping them for an amount of time. And then when the tithe comes around, uh, they give these humans instead of their own number. Um, and we see this mentioned again, there's a reference to it by one of the people who is persecuted for witchcraft in Scotland during the witch trials. Um, it's also mentioned in um, Thomas of Erkeldoon which is the, the older prose predecessor of Thomas the Rhymer, the ballad, um, and in the ballad of Tam Lin. And in uh, particularly the ballad material, uh, it generally comes up because the, the human who's in fairy, whether it's Thomas, uh, who's accompanied the Queen of Fairy into Fairyland, or Tam Lin, who has been taken by the Queen of Fairies, and has become the sort of de facto guardian of this well. Um, in both cases, they are concerned, or there is concern, that they are going to end up being this sacrifice, being this tithe, and therefore have to get out of fairy and escape the control of fairy before the tithe happens. Uh, the tithe is paid on uh, Halloween, Samhain, um, because that was the time in that particular location in Scotland, uh, one of the times of year when rent would be paid. So it, it literally was a rent being paid to hell. Uh, and 
we see a lot of really interesting uh, folkloric overtones going on with this. It ties into the changeling stories, the idea that fairies will take humans. Um, it ties into some of the material that we have about humans who are taken um, sort of in that moment between life and death and are then transformed to become fairies. Um, and, of course, it ties into, as I said at the very beginning, um, this one particular view of the nature of fairies. Um, you know, what are they? Uh, from this perspective, they're a type of fallen angel. And so this story sort of grows out of that cosmology, that belief system. And the only way, if you are, you know, chosen to be the tithe, the only way not to actually be tithed is to escape, is to no longer be a member of fairy, which is what we see in the Ballad of Tam Lin, where um, Tam Lin has taken a mortal lover and she ends up saving him, rescuing him from a fairy procession uh, the night before Halloween, the night before he would have uh, been sacrificed, as it were. Um, in Thomas the Rhymer, it's the queen of fairy herself who sends Thomas away because uh, she doesn't want him to be sacrificed, although she believes that he will be if he remains there with her. So it's a really fascinating thing to see, um, and it's particularly interesting because it is so unique um, and so location-specific. Uh, although much like the Seely and Unseely courts, it has sort of by its nature spread, um, and, uh, you know, whether it's through the popularity of the ballads or... Um, just printed word making things easier to access. Um, we do see it being much more well-known um, than it would have been previously uh, in the original area of belief and outside of it. So it's very interesting. It is. It's fascinating how something that, like you say, is so geographically distinct can feed into so many of, of the kind of wider tropes and motifs in the law. It's, it's really interesting to see how that works. I'm very yeah. aware uh, that time marches on and there's, there's so much that we could discuss in this area, but won't have time to do, but I'd just like to wrap up with one more aspect to bring this up to date. We've looked at a lot of very traditional folklore and traditional beliefs here you said to me previously that one of the areas of fairy law that interests you is the kind of way that these older beliefs feed into um more modern popular culture um and uh, the way people see these things now and and the way they're represented within culture now would you like to speak just a little bit about that to finish up I will I will try to speak just a little bit about it because um, that that is a topic that I find particularly interesting. Um, I actually ended up giving a presentation at the University of um, or sorry Ohio State University um, about the the evolution of the Seely and Unseely courts um, from their original sources in the Scottish ballads into uh, pop culture and modern fiction. Um, it's just really fascinating to me and. I think we kind of touched a little on it previously when we were talking about the Victorians and the Victorian influence on fairies. And I think that bifurcation that happened during that period and then this sort of dichotomy of belief 
that has been going on since then, where we have these traditional beliefs, these um, older beliefs, these culturally specific beliefs, and then we also have this sort of more popular culture, um, mainstream, if you will, view of fairies um, has created a really interesting tension in the way people approach fairies. And we see that more and more, uh, particularly in the last 40, 30 and 40 years, um, as fairies have gotten more popular in fiction, um, the way that people are sort of drawing on and blending uh, both that more Victorian understanding of them and view of them, and also starting to look at and delve into the more uh, folkloric understanding and view. And, uh, you know, in some cases what we see is fiction that's trying to uh, steer them back or bring them back into at least a a new pop culture version of what they used to be. Um, and on the other hand, we see this continuing evolution that's melding the more Victorian understanding of them with some of the folklore and creating this sort of continued sanitization, if you will, of some of the fairy beings that initially were not sort of incorporated into the more popular culture material. Um, and now as they're taken up into it in fiction uh, and in, art, in modern artwork, um, it's through that, that Victorian um, sort of postmodern lens that tries to see them very specifically as more helpful, as more gentle, um, in a lot of cases, and, and this is specifically Victorian, although Victorian was an influence on it, uh, Victorians and Theosophy and Edwardian era um, all sort of shaped a view of fairies as nature spirits um, and specifically, you know, guardians and protectors of nature very tied to the natural human world. And, you know, so we see that aspect of it as well being brought forward in fiction and then incorporated into the more traditional folk beliefs. And the reason this interests me in particular, as I had said much earlier, is that I'm very interested in preserving the, the older beliefs, um, the older views. Uh, and I, I do worry that they are sort of being overwritten to a degree. Um, but on the same hand, folklore by its nature evolves and changes. And it's sort of inevitable that as we move into uh, the 21st century, as we move into a, a very modern technological world, that, you know, fairy lore will change. So I think we're sort of in this, this transitional period right now, much like the Victorians themselves were, where the way we understand fairies and the way we understand fairy belief is very much changing. And you have that, traditional cultural view, but you also have that popular culture filter or lens that gets applied to it a great deal of the time. This is something I see very commonly on social media. And it's going to be interesting, I think, to see 
how this all plays out and how this all melds if one voice ends up uh, sort of speaking over the other, if they find a common ground, what direction it goes in. Um, but there's definitely been a resurgence and in interest in the, the older folklore being reinterpreted through fiction. Um, so it's, it is something that is more on the minds of people, I think, than it has been in a long time. So hopefully that will be a good thing in the long run. I'm sure it will. And, and this is something that, that goes around, of course. It's not just a modern thing. Uh, folklore is continually changing and, and developing as, as different cultural aspects are brought in and as the world around us changes. And that's been the case, I guess, for centuries. Um, it, it is, of course, extremely important to continue to try and collect as much of this data as possible and to record it both from the older traditions and beliefs and um, the way that these are changing in modern times so that we can compare and contrast but most importantly so that these beliefs don't get lost um, exactly now your your book goes a great way to continuing that work that was done by Catherine Briggs to do that with fairy folklore um, it is a, a worthy successor in many ways although as you say it's a slightly different work but it is it is a great compliment to, to Catherine's work if people want to find out more about your research and your book and the other things that you do, where do you suggest they should go to look for that information? Um, I am on Twitter. Uh, I am also on uh, Facebook. I, As I'm sure it was clear from that last uh, comment, I am very interested in social media and the way that fairy folklore plays out on social media. Um, so I, I try to keep my toes in there um, um you can find me on any any social media just under my name morgan daimler uh i try to keep that very straightforward um my facebook page is probably the best place to keep up with what i'm writing i do blog in several locations um but they're there's sort of uh three main ones um and of course i have uh the book. I also have a YouTube channel at the moment where I discuss fairy lore, little snippets, specific topics. Um, and that's all uh, things that can be accessed on my Facebook page. Not that I'm promoting Facebook in particular here, but sort of everything gets aggregated and centralized there for me. So for the moment, that's probably the best place for people to go to. Excellent. As Morgan says, there, there are many places that you can find their work. Um, uh, if you go to the guests page on the Folklore Podcast site, as usual, then I will put links on there uh, to the book and to some other things that Morgan does so you can follow their work that way as well. Morgan, this has been an excellent start to the new season of the podcast thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with us today about a subject which is eternally fascinating to many people and it's great to be able to start the new season with some real traditional law um, and to build up from there to see where we go throughout the rest of 2020 so thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me it's been a, it pleasure. Was a great discussion and it is definitely a topic that we probably talk about for hours and hours and have multiple guests talking about so we really we really could and uh, you must come on again and talk about some of the uh, aspects of your research in the future 
I would love that. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Head on over to the guests page of the Folklore Podcast to find those links to Morgan's online spaces, as well as their biography and photo. I'll be posting a review soon of Morgan's book too, as well as other folklore books received on a new section of the website for this purpose. More news on that when it goes live. If you are an author or publisher and would like to have your book featured either on the podcast or on the website, then please get in touch for more details. I'd also like to try and end episodes of the podcast this year with a selection of traditional folk music and song, either archive recordings or your own work. If you have recordings, you're in a band or you're a solo performer and would like to have tracks featured, again, please get in touch. Here to play out this episode is Nantuck from Chalk Horse Music. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.